We had quite a journey in season four of The Unlovely Truth. So let's look back to some of the episodes that defined, inspired, and challenged us. There were blockbuster moments, unexpected plot twists, and heartwarming scenes all year long. Most of all, there were impactful takeaways to help us enhance our physical, emotional, and spiritual safety. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, Pride Investigator Lori Morrison. I'm so glad you've joined me for this year-end wrap-up, where we will highlight some of the best true crime stories that we investigated this year. And if you're listening, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI, not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is season four, episode 49. As I was looking back over the year, I was just so amazed at the journeys we got to take with all of our incredible guests. It amazed me to see the strength, the dignity, and the determination to help others that so many of them shared. We started off the year highlighting the unsolved murder of Jim Duckett from Shelbyville, Kentucky. His case is still unsolved, but another couple of podcasters are determined to change that. I will have a link in the show notes to their podcast. And we did look at many, many other unsolved cases throughout the year, and I hope that you shared those so that we can keep those cases active and maybe even get them solved. One of our missions this last year was learning from others' courageous true stories. And we had multiple shows that taught us just how tough crime survivors are. Candace Reyes is a speaker, an author, and the executive director of the nonprofit HerWell. As a two-time survivor of sexual assault, Candace inspired not only me, but all kinds of women that were working to overcome their fear of the past and walk with Jesus through recovery. She uses storytelling and practical tips to help women reclaim hope, regain their voice, and resist the urge to isolate during this difficult journey. She's an award-winning author who coaches survivors daily as they embrace their healing. How did you develop your programs? God, I know that's that's very cliche, but It's the process that God took me on my own journey of healing. I had to understand that my perspective on intimacy had been broken. And that brokenness, it impacted not only my family and my kids and my my husband, but it also impacted my relationship with God. I didn't know if I could truly trust him in certain situations anymore. Something happened to me and it was not kind. And I didn't understand why that had to happen or why that's part of my story. However, he does. And there is so much beauty from our ashes if we choose to go and seek him in the midst of those ashes. And it takes building that intimacy with him. We tend to trust people who are in positions of power or who hold down jobs that are service-oriented, like a doctor, a pastor, or a therapist. Our guest Amy Nordhues trusted her therapist. Everyone in her community just loved him. Her friends raved about him. He was even an elder at the church she was attending. Amy didn't know it, but he was also very, very dangerous. Amy wrote the book, Prayed Upon, Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse. She's also a speaker who hopes that she can use her experience both as a new Christian and as a victim of sexual abuse by a therapist or clergy member to help support and educate others. She hopes that she can show the process that adults go through to heal from abuse 
and how past childhood abuse can make an adult vulnerable to predators and so much more. I think that most of us have a gut feeling or an intuition about people, maybe an energy that we sense, but we don't feel that we're allowed to act on that. Just from my upbringing and the person that I was, I had very low self-esteem. And so I saw red flags and I saw things that were a little concerning, but I thought, who am I to judge this person? Who am I even to have an opinion that's different from other people's? And this was a, a leader, a church leader, an elder, a doctor, a therapist. And so I think it's giving ourselves permission to trust our gut, even if nobody else sees it. Nobody else has to see it. Isolation is a key component in abuse. Abusers will try to isolate you. When you feel your world getting smaller and smaller and one relationship becoming more and more prominent, that's kind of a dangerous, slippery slope. And so the other thing I would say is before it's too late, reach out, but not only reach out and just share with somebody else what's going on. We also learned a lot about heroes, like our guest Jeff Jellison, the Hamilton County, Indiana coroner. He's a former law enforcement officer, and he's also a certified medical legal death investigator. Jeff has a very big job trying to determine who the bones found on Herb Baumeister's Indiana estate belong to. As you'll hear, there were thousands of bones and bone fragments discovered on Fox Hollow Farm. We investigated what Jeff is doing to uncover the truth about whose remains those are so that their families can have the answers they need. When I decided to jump with both feet into this investigation, and I met with the Indiana State Police DNA lab, and their guidance to me was, we can test all 10,000 bones, theoretically, and get DNA from them, theoretically. But unless we have a comparison sample, the DNA that they will extract from the bones will be entered into a national database, and that will be searched. But unless we have comparison samples to put in that database, we're not going to get any hits back. So this is where the media really became important. I contacted the media and made a plea. I said, I have got to get out to the community. Her family's out there. The, the woman that I talked about earlier, the mother that has terminal cancer, whose son is missing since 1994, I believe it was, she's maintained a landline telephone during this whole time. And when I asked her about that and asked her why, she said, that's the only telephone number my son has to get a hold of me at. He doesn't know my cell phone number. That's rough. She's sitting at home every day waiting for him to walk through the door. And she just wants to know. She just wants some closure and some peace to come about her, knowing that what happened to her son and, and to be able to get her son's remains back to her. If you Google the words domestic violence statistics, you'll find some very sobering information. Did you know that according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence? They use examples like being beaten, burned, or even strangled by an intimate partner in the victim's lifetime. Years ago, I worked for a short time in a domestic violence court as a victim's advocate, and I can tell you that the stat that I just quoted is not an exaggeration. If you think that no one in your church or your family, or your circle of friends is being abused, I hate to tell you that you're wrong. And just leaving isn't always an option. John Peace knows that, and he's doing something about it. 
95 to 98 percent, and this actually came from the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Theirs is actually 98 percent. They say the reason they stay in a toxic relationship is due to financial abuse. And what financial abuse is, that means that abuser controls the money, controls the checking accounts, controls the spending. And and it was almost like a light bulb went off to me going, gosh, you know, if you ever watch these TV shows and you see these cops, you know, they go to that same house three or four times to a domestic violence call. And you see that cop go, gosh, why don't these people just leave? Well, beside, you know, there, there's a psychological reasons, you know, whether it be trauma bonding, fear, and other things, but there's also a physical barrier is they have no money. And even though they might work and they might actually be middle class, might even be upper class, if you don't have access to your money, you're trapped. And mm-hmm. just think about leaving your life with nothing but a shirt on the back or with a bunch of kids. How am I going to feed them tomorrow if we leave? With Safe Haven Services and these digital security boxes, you can go into a library and set up your digital security box with us. You only have to use your own phone or your own home computer. That's important because if you've got an abuser that snoops on your record, snoops on your phone, snoops on your private business, then you might want to look at doing this elsewhere. You could go in, pretty much set up your digital security box with us, just like you would your online banking. The setup's very, very similar. Once you got that set up with us, you can just deposit money into that digital security box at your convenience whenever you want to. Whenever you think you can kind of squirrel away $20, $10, whatever that might be, it's as easy as logging into your security box. We can take debit credit cards and you can put that payment into your box. And it's private, very private and very discreet. Each of us who is a parent knows what it's like to be in a tough season with our kids. We need the support of others who've been there and survived. For all of us who are seasoned parents, I want to challenge us to find a parent who is in that tough season right now and see if they might be open to having you help. Whether that's just being someone who'll listen to them when they need to talk or being more involved. The important thing is that we work together, and that's how we're going to make our families our loved ones, and our communities just a little bit safer. I was so excited to talk to author Leslie Giglieri. Her interest in criminal justice led her to work as a 911 dispatcher in California. She moved to Oregon and joined a county sheriff's department, and then she accepted a position as a field representative for a criminal justice computer system overseeing the needs of 17 different agencies. Now that she's retired, she was able to fulfill the wish of a friend to document the story of her husband's murder and share a surprising message of encouragement. Even though they'd had trouble with Dwayne, they weren't ever afraid of him. She was mad at him for things that he had done, but they never were fearful. And after that, she was afraid of him. I think that was really hard for her, that feeling. But as far as staying connected, that was important to her. I've always said that we want God's grace and forgiveness for ourselves, but we're not always so quick to extend it to other people. God loves everybody as his child, and we don't like to think about how someone that's done something like Dwayne did as God loving them as much as he loves us. That's just something tough to process. It doesn't seem fair. So I was just so amazed that she was able to really, in the midst of her grief, just to hone in on that and understand it and really, really show people what unconditional love looks like. And 
I think with Cherie that the forgiveness in terms of what he had done and her being able to forgive him didn't come for years. She indicated that she had earlier on than I think she really had because of just conversations that we had. So even though she didn't forgive him, she still felt like it was important for her to, because her uh, spiritual life was so important and her concern for him in terms of his spiritual well-being, she felt that she couldn't abandon him in that way to prison life without keeping that connection. She would write scripture to him. She would pray for him, no matter how she felt about him. I don't know if that makes sense. She loved him in that way that comes from a commitment more than a feeling, I guess. Have you ever been told that you're musically gifted because your family's just like that? It's a genetic thing, kind of like my high cholesterol. Thanks, family. Well, what if there was a serial killer gene? There's a fascinating book that we talked about called The Murder Gene. And we were blessed to have its author, Karen Spears Zacharias, as our guest. While growing up, the killer and his victim both had their strongest social connections in their churches. They both had parents who wanted to shield their children from evil, as much as that's even possible. Luke Chang had something in his background, though, that was unique. His grandfather, Gene, attacked two teenage girls with the intent to kidnap and sexually assault them. When he was released from prison, Luke's grandfather went to live with his daughter, who happened to be Luke's mother. Did the genes pass on from his grandfather or the influence his grandfather had on him while they lived in the same house play a bigger role in shaping Luke into a killer? We're loath to talk about something like a murder gene because of our history with eugenics in this mm. society. And with good reason, we should be careful. But I'll explain it to you the way it was explained to me by a professor at Florida State. He said that his father had had diabetes. And so genetically, he was predisposed to diabetes. Now, that didn't mean that he would have diabetes because he could control his lifestyle, what he ate, exercise. That's not always the case with everyone with diabetes, but in his case, that was true. And so he said it's the same with the MAOA gene. There are factors that can come into play, but there are people who are born with a genetic propensity toward violence in the same way that there are people genetically predisposed to diabetes or arthritis or cancer or any of the other medical things that can plague us. It depends a lot on the external factors, how those genes will respond in a time of stress. So it's definitely a tendency and not a certainty. If a person has this gene, there are other things like childhood trauma, drug abuse. Uh, I, I would think even being around people that are encouraging your more negative tendencies and ha just having a lack of coping skills, like you kind of alluded to when you're under stress, not coping with it in a healthy way, but letting kind of that biological tendency run wild. 
I want to make sure people know that there's hope. <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not dest it's not destiny for sure. No, there's no destiny in this. And it occurred to me that we're always proud when we see some genetic trait that we admire in our children, our grandchildren, and when they acknowledge that that trait came from the mother or the grandmother or the father and the grandfather. We're always keen to do that. But if it's a negative trait, right? How many times have we said to our husbands, that came from your side of the family? (laughs) So we, we are keen to accept the good when we see it reflected in offspring, but we are loath to give that same weight to negative traits in characteristics that biologically come to them, right? Speaking of bad apples in the family tree, do you think you could turn your own father into the police? What if I told you that you found out he had abused children? Could you do it then? Would it make a difference if one of those children was your own sister and others were children at the church where your father was the preacher? Author and pastor Jimmy Hinton wrote The Devil Inside about his experience doing just that. He consults with churches who are dealing with leaders who have done things similar to what his father did. He shared with us that many will say to him, but you don't know how much good this man has done for the church. I love the way Jimmy responds by saying, and you don't know how much evil he's done either. Often, if you look at the definitions of grooming, it's this long process and it takes a long time. You you establish trust. You know, they're working really hard to look like they're trustworthy. Uh, They kind of worm their way into the home. And it's like this building process over a period of months or even years. And my experience is it very rarely works that way. I mean, what happens is incredibly quick. They don't have to establish authority because they already have it. They already mm-hmm. have trust. They already show kindness. They show courtesy. And, and so they don't have to take all this time to, to build up to that. My dad explained it in, in a series of letters from prison. And he said, what I do, and he didn't call it testing. It just as as I was hearing him describe this, I was like, oh my goodness, he's testing not only his victims, but he's matching them to the right parents. We often talk about, you know, like trainings that we have on on abuse. We'll talk about this grooming process and how they find vulnerable children that, you know, probably came from a broken home. Parents are divorced or negligent or whatever. And they focus on those vulnerable kids and then they start grooming them. They become this superhero wearing a cape kind of thing. And I'm like, no, they target anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter whether they have loving parents or not. They find vulnerabilities. They first test the child, but then they have to match the right child to the right parent. And they have to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that that parent is going to be none the wiser. Domestic violence is such a complicated topic. And even though I had worked for a time, like I said, in a domestic violence court, I'd never seen a case like this before. A case where a child was made to kill by her mother. We looked at the book, My Mother's Soldier by Mary Elizabeth Bailey, and we had a phenomenal guest, Chris Moles, who edited and and contributed to Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse. It was written by a team of biblical counselors, and Chris himself is a certified biblical counselor, a pastor, an author, and a podcaster. He helped us unpack some areas where the church needs to grow when it comes to responding and ministering to families that have experienced domestic violence. 
is there is a responsibility of the church to be aware, to do some preventative measures, to educate the church. But ultimately, as you say, this is a sin that is incredibly well hidden. Uh, it's one that's reinforced with threat and fear, and so uh, in economics. So it's really difficult uh, for a lady in our church to disclose. So for us, being open and, and honest with our congregation that we see abuse as a, a theological problem, I think will help if pastors can come forward and say, you know, we see abuse in all its forms as a desecration of the image of God, as a demonic distortion of the way God designed relationships, and so therefore we will take it seriously. That would help. I think educating the church on the dynamics and impact of abuse and actually recognizing that it does happen, uh, unfortunately, at the same rate in the church as it does outside the church, and maybe a real commitment from those of us who are leaders to say, because it's so significant, because it's at such a high level in the church, we're going to be really committed to make the church the safest place on the planet. Stalking is a tactic that abusers often use to control their victims. Being stalked can be terrifying, but there are steps you can take to protect yourself. We talked about some actual cases so that we could learn some tactics to keep ourselves safe from these creeps. We looked at the book, Think Like a Stalker and Stop Them, by my friend and fellow private investigator, Michael Kenny. He said he wrote this book to share what he's learned from years of working with celebrity and non-celebrity stalking victims. He gave us some great tools and direction to help ourselves or someone else end that nightmare. Part of the problem with our society, other than social media and everybody seeing everything you do, is that we're taught no means not right now. You know, you look at like the movie, The Notebook, you know, you keep pursuing and these people will say, it took me 40 times to ask her out and she finally went out. Well, that's not right. That's not okay. We're taught through movies, books, songs that you just keep pursuing. And that's a big problem. If I were to ask you, when you were raised, I'm sure your mom and dad said, be nice when you break up, let them down easy. But the reality is, if you want to head off future problems, you have to come down on them like a sledgehammer. And you have to say things like, I will never be attracted to you again. There's no future here. They need to get the message clearly that you're done. And a lot of times they'll go away. And I'm, that's outside of some type of mental issue. But a lot of times they, they're holding on to a thread that we'll get back together, you'll realize what we had and come back around, which is not the case. Behind the facade of a religious community lay a story of manipulation, mind control, and tragedy. We investigated the secrets, the power, and the psychological grip of the Word of Life Church, and it was a story of religious devotion taken to the extreme. The book Broken Faith Inside One of America's Most Dangerous Cults by Mitch Weiss and Holbrook Moore detailed more about this faith community slash cult. And for this story, we checked in with Lori Prather, our chaplain here at The Unlovely Truth. Anytime that a pastor or a church is trying to tell you exactly what to do and monitoring it, not normal. Yes, the Bible lays out God's plan for our lives. So a pastor standing up and quoting scripture and talking about this is what the Bible tells us to do or how God calls us to live or how this calling from God puts us in the healthiest place. That's very different than someone standing up and saying, I need you to do this, this and this, and I'm checking in on you or there will be consequences if you don't. There should never be consequences at a church unless it's you did something wrong and therefore you can't serve anymore. 
And I think one of the things, this is a big one to me that really applies to anything we could list right now is, does it measure up biblically? And in this particular case, they weren't really claiming it was scriptural. So that should be the biggest red flag. But a lot of people will tell you it's scriptural. One of the things I've always loved about the pastor of the church I worked at for many years is he would say all the time, don't take my word for it. You should be going every Sunday and looking up the scripture and reading these stories and making sure that what I told you was correct. The murder of Angela Michelle Lawless, an honest sheriff and the exoneration of an innocent man, was a fascinating book by Stephen Snodgrass and Joshua Kieser. And we were lucky enough to have Joshua as a guest on the podcast. When samples from Michelle's fingernail scrapings were sent to the FBI laboratory, they didn't really get much information back because back at that time, DNA testing wasn't what it is now. They could only eliminate some suspects. And so Michelle's case went cold quickly. But then prisoners in the Cape Girardeau County Jail came forward with stories about a guy they said had confessed to murdering Michelle. Who knows why they picked Josh to lie about? But later, one would say that they figured Josh would be able to prove his innocence after they got deals for turning him in. But it didn't work out that way. Could you forgive someone whose lies sent you to prison? I've wrestled with this over time. I've heard preachers behind pulpits that I believe are inexperienced with forgiveness say that forgiveness is a one-time thing, that if you if you truly forgive, then it should only require one time, giving it completely to God, and then you move on. And I, I feel that that's beyond naivete. I feel that that's, that's beyond ignorance. That's just foolish. It denies human complexity. It really denies the trauma often of what you're forgiving. And it, it denies the individuality of that walking out of forgiveness that God has with each of us. But I do believe that there's a roadmap and there are instructions that God gives us throughout the word and that the more that we follow that map and the more we follow those instructions and we walk that forgiveness out, he shows us a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more. And he helps us give a little bit more to him of that wound every day. And the forgiveness becomes more and more whole and more and more complete. To wrap up everything that we've explored and investigated in 2023, I chose yet another Bible verse from Proverbs. And, and this week is Proverbs 27:17 from the New International Version. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, we all like to have useful tools like scissors and knives to help us get things done in the kitchen and around the house. But when we've used them a lot, they tend to get dull. To make them work well again, we have to sharpen them. And that means we have to put the blade up against a hard surface and apply pressure, shaving away bits of metal to restore a proper angle that will allow the blade to cut again. That's really what I am trying to do with each episode of The Unlovely Truth. We look for clues in these tough stories that help us become sharper so that we can protect ourselves and our loved ones. The topics we cover might sometimes be just a bit painful to listen to, but when we go over these stories and we learn from them, it's how we become useful tools in our communities. I am really excited for season five to get started with our next episode. Let's make 2024 a year to sharpen each other so we can each be a person of impact for someone who needs us. 
Let me know what you think about the podcast. Send me an email at lori at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I love it when people are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.